1,000 better stories. You're listening to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine the better and fairer future and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, your story weaver. Today we host another one of our crossover episodes from the Scottish collective of climate-engaged audio storytellers. This particular story was originally published in July and comes from the brand new Disrupting the Donut of Doom podcast from our friends at Emen or Ethnic Minority Environmental Network. Why Disrupting the Donut of Doom? I'll hand over to Andrew Williams for the explanation. He's been hosting this monthly podcast from its inception in May this year. I think what we find at MN is that it's often very easy to get stuck in cycles, um, cycles of funding where you know, you're know you chasing funding for a project, you get the funding, but then you don't necessarily have time to deliver the project before you have to go and find more funding yet again. But also cycles where you know it's easy to to get into a rut of speaking to the same people, um, you know, calling on the same networks, the same contacts time and time again. And, and that can be really valuable. But also at MN, you know, what we see is the value of breaking out of those uh, networks, breaking out of those cycles and um, trying to get in touch with, with different communities, more diverse communities. And, you know, obviously our focus is on, is on uh, organisations from ethnic minority communities who are working in the environmental sector. We think that's, that's a really important thing. In the episode we're sharing today, we hear about Glasgow Food Policy Partnership, who also have an excellent podcast called Good Food for Glasgow. Both podcasts are worth a listen and available through all the usual distribution networks. I'll drop the links into episode notes for you. But now let's hear from Andrew and his guest. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest Disrupting the Donut of Doom podcast. My name is Andrew Williams and I'm the Environmental Projects Coordinator here at Sembo Scotland. And each time we have a new podcast to share with you, we try and look at things that are happening in Scotland, things that are happening in the field of the environment and climate change, and things that affect ethnic minority communities. And if you're interested in one, two, or all three of those things, then we hope that this podcast may be for you. Uh, This month, I was really, really pleased to chat to Talia from Glasgow Food Policy Partnership. We had a long and very wide-ranging discussion that cut across so many issues not just about food, but how food intersects with with equality, uh, with the political landscape in which we operate, and of course, how it affects uh, the climate emergency, and also, most specifically, um, the effect that it has on ethnic minority communities who are living in Scotland. Um, It's a bit of a a game of two halves, this podcast, because I was delighted to have Talia uh, on uh, the podcast here, and I am going to be guesting on the Glasgow Food Policy Partnership podcast, which is called The Good 
Good Food for Glasgow podcast. So look out for that soon and we'll stick some links in the bio. Um, as always, we're enormously grateful to our funders, uh, Esme Fairbairn and the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Without them, the work that we do at Senvo and the Environment Team wouldn't be possible. And of course, these podcasts wouldn't be possible either. So uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed speaking to Talia. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation that we had. And I'll be back at the end just to reflect on some of what we talked about. Disrupting the Donut of Doom. So, Talia, thank you so much for braving the winds and the wilds to come over to the Senvo offices today. It must be a real treat for you to be here in our offices, I'll bet. But um, just to kick off, I wonder if you could maybe tell us a bit about yourself, uh, what it is that you do at the moment, and what it is that has brought you to this stage in your career. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I will say it is a pleasure to be in the Sembo offices. Um, you know, right next to the Clyde, you can really feel how great of a day it is. Um, but the office is lovely. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Talia and I work at Glasgow Food Policy Partnership. And we're all about sustainable food, accessible food. We collaborated in our partnership to bring together the Glasgow City Food Plan, which is a 10-year plan which works to improve Glasgow's food system. But I'm sure we can get into all of that a little bit later. But that's me. I'm at Glasgow Food Policy Partnership. And I suppose it's a funny question of what brought me to this stage because I don't feel very far along in my in, in my job progression. I, in fact, only graduated last year, this time last year. So I am a bit of a youngster. It was my birthday yesterday, so I'm pleased to be a year older, um, which makes me feel like less of a baby. But in fact, I guess when I was at university, I developed this real interest in sustainable food and sort of jumped into all the different aspects of that that I could. And then I was very lucky to roll into a job at Glasgow Food Policy Partnership, which has really expanded and grown that interest. Um, yeah, and I've just sort of found this whole this whole world of of Glasgow food activism and work and different things that are happening and it's a very exciting and vibrant area. Well I think the first thing to say Talia is that if obviously if I'd known that I would have baked a cake but happy birthday for yesterday um, and yeah I mean I think I can understand why people are, are drawn to this area of food because it's something that is universal you know there's absolutely no doubt about that we all need food um, and food can be, we can consume food in a, in a positive way or perhaps a negative way. I don't know uh, how you feel about that. But I wondered what you felt some of the, the big issues, maybe in Glasgow or maybe, you know, nationally and internationally. What are the big issues that are kind of stopping us from growing and consuming food in a more sustainable way? So to respond to the first part of your question, I think it is absolutely a, because food is something that is universal, as you say. And I think for me, it was around the kind of that it brings together all these different issues there's sustainability as you're saying there are barriers to consuming sustainable food and it's something that exists for all of us on an everyday level but which also offers the opportunity offers the opportunity to delve into all these different sort of systems level issues or um, think about these broader things so I think in terms of what our barriers are to consuming sustainable food I think a, a massive thing is that most of the food we buy is in the supermarkets. I think it's around 90% of all the food available to buy is supermarket food. And that means they have a massive control over 
what it is that they're selling and I have been really pleased to see that you can get I guess like one example of sustainable more sustainable food is organic food it's you know it's better for the soil um it is kind of grown with consciousness to the wildlife and you know you can get organic ranges now in most supermarkets in Morrison's I was in Little the other day and you can get organic food there and it's a little bit more expensive but it's nice to see that that is available in the major supermarkets but broadly speaking the food that we can buy in supermarkets is supplied from a, a, a global supply chain is not most of it isn't grown in the UK it's not following seasonal patterns I would say the, the kind of main factors of what makes food sustainable is it being local seasonal and organic ideally and so that's really not the majority of the food that we can buy in the supermarkets and when that is com- completely what shapes the food that we're buying because it's easier it's you know there's supermarkets everywhere you most people aren't going to trek to their local local food shop um their local grocers and so i would say that that is a massive thing and then even if you do want to put in the time and the energy to go to those more niche supermarkets it costs you a bit more and and that is especially at the moment just not something that people have the capacity to do and so it's not more convenient and it's not cheaper so you can see why there aren't really that many incentives apart from when you're trying to be conscious of these things and think about sustainability and I should say that food sustainability is hugely important because it is I think it's something like if we I mean even just food waste for example if we combine global food waste it's one of the largest emitters like on a level up there with like the US and China if we combine those carbon emissions so it is really worth thinking about and thinking about how we're eating but you can see why people don't and that's coming from me when this is sort of my whole life and I think that's one of the really interesting things that you sort of touched on there is that a lot of the time when we talk about the broad issues if you like around sustainability and you know climate change and net zero and all these things people sometimes have a sort of sense of helplessness that they feel like these issues are just too big but actually one of the things you've mentioned there which is a huge contribution to um, our greenhouse gas emissions is food waste something that literally everybody can control <laughs> and can decide you know when they're uh, shopping or when they're uh, consuming food they can decide uh, you know how much they're buying uh, and and um, uh, what they're how they're using it and how they're planning to do it to ensure that they're not wasting the food and that seems like such an obvious thing um one of the things obviously the key thing that we uh, are focusing on at Sembo is the effect that all of these issues have on ethnic minority communities in Scotland. And I wondered if you felt that there were any specific areas around food policy that could have an effect on on ethnic minority communities, or do you think it's just a universal thing that everybody um, should care about? I mean, I think it's one of those where it a lot of food policy is sort of, it's applicable to everybody, but that it does affect ethnic minority groups in a specific way so it follows the kind of uk-wide trends especially if we look at things like food insecurity the food foundation has been releasing a series of up-to-date statistics and data on the growing food insecurity figures in the uk i will say there isn't too much information on scotland because they have a smaller sample size but if we look at the uk-wide they break it down into different minority groups and so, you know, they look at how people with disabilities are affected by food insecurity, how ethnic minorities are affected. And they find that consistently ethnic minority groups are more likely to be experiencing food insecurity. So I would say that's one major example where it's sort of like 
food insecurity can affect anybody and we see that it does in the UK but it follows those those consistent trends around deprivation and general poverty and insecurity and that follows a food food insecurity follows that trend so I would say that's a major way and I was just actually last week at a really interesting event by a new Glasgow charity called the Honorary Scotians and they're working towards I think probably Sembo would have a lot in common with them um they're working towards looking at how the well this specific event was thinking about how the cost of living crisis affects who they call honorary Scotians which is people who I guess new Scots is another term that people use right um people that have have moved to Scotland and they were just talking about so many different factors that affect broadly people's access to services whether it's languages general discrimination that people aren't so willing um due to institutional racism to help people out as well that even if people have the language skills that people just won't give them the time of day sort of thing or just assume that they they don't understand things like that and that there are kind of all these all these cost of living factors that then go on to affect ethnic minorities ethnic minority communities in a worse way so i would say it's not that there are maybe particular food policies that are tailored to that although moving on to a separate point there is a there is a consideration around and there are lots of people in glasgow working to make this happen thinking about okay so if we're trying to have local local food and we're trying to eat sustainably and food that is grown in scotland obviously our scottish climate doesn't really suit all the food that if if it if it is for people that are new scots or that there may be a second generation immigrants or anything like that you know the foods that maybe fit their their inherited recipes or the recipes that they're used to back where they used to live we don't really have have the right vegetables or things grown in Scotland but there are some really great projects that are are working towards growing growing more more um, a more diverse range of fruit and vegetables so that people can have locally grown but also culturally appropriate food i will say speaking that kind of tagline culturally appropriate is something that um is incorporated into a lot of considerations around food and and specifically the right to food is something that you, they kind of the the right includes a right to you know healthy nutritious food and food that is culturally appropriate so having that and making sure that people can eat the things that they would consider to be culturally appropriate for them is really important um when we're thinking about food policy definitely and i mean i think um well, there's a couple of things that struck me there. Firstly, I, I love the idea of the honorary Scotian. So we'll have a look at that and try and put the link in the bio to the podcast as well. But um, it struck me while you were um, uh, mentioning this thing about the uh, culturally appropriate food. Um, there was a great example of that a project that we worked on last year as part of a, um, uh, a project called Mobilising Community Climate Action that we worked with WWF uh, on. And uh, one of the projects that they supported in Glasgow was the Wing Hong Elderly Group, which was a, a, um, a sort of a day centre for um, elderly Chinese people. And uh, the fund then gave them some cash to do this amazing project where they had a kind of an urban kind of community garden where they were growing traditional vegetables that would have been grown in China, if you like. And then they were getting younger members of the community to kind of come in and learn recipes from the elderly people who were using the day center to kind of pass on these traditional recipes and things like that using the the you know the the vegetables and other ingredients that would have been appropriate to it. so it's just this beautiful kind of virtuous circle kind of thing 
And I think, you know, that, you know, ties in perfectly with something else that we always talk about when we're talking about the communities that we represent, which is that, you know, they're not, you know, these aren't just, you know, always vulnerable communities who need our support. You know, these are people that we can learn from, you know, and, and communities who have a lot to teach us in terms of, you know, how we do things in a Western way. And obviously a lot of the communities that Semba work with will be uh, culturally vegetarian, for instance. You know, they won't be consuming, you know, animal products. And we know that whatever we think about, uh, you know, vegan and plant-based stuff and all the rest of it, it does have an effect on our greenhouse gas emissions. There's no doubt about that. So, yeah, some really interesting points there. Can I jump back Go in on, quickly? yeah, this is what it's all about. So, Just to yeah, say, yeah. yeah, like you're totally right around there's so much knowledge that's held already in communities and in different cultures. And I think things specifically like veganism, it's really interesting because it has this whole sort of, I guess, lofty, very middle class yeah. vibe to it, inaccessible sort of thing that really puts people off and makes them think, oh, that's definitely not for me. And a plant-based diet and at least reducing our meat consumption is a really an easy way that we can drastically make our diets more sustainable. But absolutely, like, eating a more vegetarian diet is something that lots of people have been doing forever before it became this trendy, sustainable thing to do. So absolutely, like, it's so great to have the opportunity to learn from, from different people that already hold all of this knowledge um, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and imagining that we have all the answers, you know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. we definitely don't, I don't think. Um, so listen, Talia, you've come on a podcast called Disrupting the Donut of Doom. And, you know, lots of people probably wondering why it's called that. But every time we run one of these, we try and think of a question that's going to maybe get us out of the sort of cyclical way of thinking, a uh, way of thinking where we just get stuck doing the same things over and over again and trying to um, come up with interesting, innovative ways of looking at whatever the topic we're is, that, that, it, that we're discussing uh, in each particular episode. So with this one, when I was thinking about food, and we touched on this earlier as well, you know, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, basically. Everybody's bills are going up and food has never been more expensive i don't think and it is something that um is causing a lot of issues for everyone you know right across the spectrum and i wondered if you thought there was any potential to almost leverage the current cost of living crisis to try and make some real lasting change to the kind of food system that we have at the moment. Now, I mean, all joking aside, you know, I am here to try and overthrow the current capitalist model, right? And I'm sure we all are, right? No, and I mean, you know, uh, my tongue is slightly in my cheek there for anyone who's uh, gonna report us to Ofcom or anything like that. Um, but, um, uh, but do you think there is a way of us maybe using the, uh, just reflecting on, let's say COVID, and the number of changes that COVID had, many of which were hugely negative in the way that it impacted people and the way that it really turned people's lives upside down. But I think now, actually, uh, I'm in the office today and I'll be in the office tomorrow and the rest of the time I work from home. And I've never had a better work-life balance. Uh, and before COVID, obviously, I would have been in this office five days a week and that would have been it. There would have been no question of me, you know, working remotely or anything like that, except in very extreme circumstances. So despite how awful COVID was, there are undoubtedly some things that, because we had to change a lot of things really quickly, some of those things were good and they've stuck and we've managed to keep them. And I wondered if, is there any glimmer of hope here with this cost of living crisis that perhaps there's a way of getting people to, to look at food differently? Or can we produce food differently? 
could we try and turn this sort of negative economic crash, if you like, into some kind of positive? So I think taking them together as well, thinking of COVID-19 and also thinking about the cost of living crisis, they highlight so many of the issues in our food system. It makes it so clear that the way that we consume food, the supply chains we have are so unstable, thinking about the Ukraine war as well, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as I should perhaps say. You know, like these things really highlight that our food system as it as it is at the moment is so fragile and that it's not working for so many people. Our emergency food services, which initially, and there are some, some really great work, the Independent Food Aid Network, IFAN, they have a lot of work around ending the need for food banks. And food banks were something that really became a normalized thing in 2010. That's when they came in. Before that, we didn't have this reliance on food banks. And it was always imagined that, you know, these things would get scaled back eventually. Whereas at the moment, emergency food services, and I know that this is the case in Glasgow, have such a high demand that they can't they can't supply everyone that they need to. They're so strained because at this point, people can't afford food when they have non-negotiable bills, their fuel bills, whether, you know, we've heard so much about people having to choose between food or fuel. I think what what is good is that it highlights how unsustainable our system is at the moment in the long term and I think a lot of people are really angry at how things are at the moment and rightly so and I think that can be very powerful um, and I hope that that will lead to some mobilization and some drastic change. I think that there are so many incredible I'm thinking about disrupting the donut of doom. There are so many incredible and radical visions for the future of our food system, you know, like some personal dreams of mine. I think so many people would be interested in having public diners. Nourish Scotland are doing some work on public diners at the moment. And just just tell us what that is. I guess a public diner. Now they're doing the work on it at the moment. So look forward to a more comprehensive (laughs) and fully, fully researched and, and theorized outcome from Nourish Scotland coming soon. But what I will say is that I think the idea of a public diner is having a space where people can come, eat together, socialise, I guess sort of like a community meal, pay a small amount of money and get food that is, you know, that's not processed, that's healthy, that would be local, would be sustainable. And I guess this all, you know, that is something to me, like whenever I would speak to anyone that organises a community meal, something that everyone will talk about is the amazing vision of maybe if we could have this on every street, you know, like that would be incredible. And I think that's one vision of a future where people wouldn't be reliant on food banks. People would be able to eat in the community at maybe a pay what you feel basis. You know, you can come, you can eat, you can see people, you can eat delicious food. Um, And I think things like that, you know, pose an alternative vision of a non-commodified way of viewing food and a, a real right to food and a way of people to access food in a with with dignity and um nourish scotland also have a lot of work around dignity and practice and and dignified food provision which basically just means you know if you're thinking about people accessing food banks and emergency food supplies how do we allow people to do that while maintaining their dignity as far as possible? I feel like I'm, you know, I'm going, I'm shooting off in all different directions. But to link back, what I wanted to say is that there are so many different. When we talk about the cost of living crisis, I'm sure you know this in your work as well. There's been such a funding crisis for so many different projects, and I think what's really sad to see is that a lot of incredible work can no longer continue in Glasgow. Work that to me was really exemplary of. A food system that we would like to see and that hasn't been able to continue because the costs have just been too high um, and I think that's really upsetting to see and I guess what 
I kind of, I would say personally, I swing back and forth between seeing this as a really exciting opportunity where all of our systems are so clearly malfunctioning and not working and not serving people. And I think we've been utterly failed by the UK government. I'm, you know, like I'm more of a fan of the Scottish government, but they're not doing great either. And I think when you have such a blatant failure, you think, okay, well, maybe like this is the time that we we're going to do something about it because it's it's just unacceptable on so many levels and not serving so many people but equally i think it's i guess and i feel like this is the case for a lot of people my age that it's hard to be hopeful for change and hard to feel like that is something that could really happen when i guess we're all so exhausted everyone's so tired and no one has the time we're so burnt out and as much as people can have an energy and a passion for change. You know, like if you protest, you're gonna get arrested. If you go and try and say something, do something on the streets, make a make a display of anything, try and get some publicity for your cause. I think it's really disheartening when you just see people that, you know, before they've even actually like gotten their placards out, that's them in the back of a police van. You know, like we have a, a yeah, I guess the UK government really is, is a hostile environment at the moment for, for dissent really i don't think we're we have a very an a political environment that's very conducive to taking a stand and trying to campaign for alternative systems so yeah i absolutely yo-yo between a bit of hopelessness that i'm sort of trying to overcome myself and all these incredible visions for how i think our food system could be and if talking about the fragility of our supply chains and all of this you know like there are so many opportunities for more localized growing and more growing in scotland and kind of dialing things back a little bit um not expecting to be able to eat strawberries in the winter not having a banana all the time you know when it's had to fly halfway around the world and i guess just dialing things back getting a little bit more used to okay so what's seasonal especially in the summer if you can eat things that are grown in scotland at the winter it's a bit dire you're just gonna really have an onion but and maybe pop, maybe it's a good time to pop some stuff in the freezer so we can eat some vegetables in the winter too um but yeah i guess i've waffled on i've said there was yeah no i think it's brilliant talia and you know i would agree with you it feels like it's been a long 10 years you know let's put it that way and i think it's funny i was just thinking while you were um saying that you know about the seasonality and stuff like that but i think um, again, you know, I have to be careful how I phrase this, I suppose. But I feel like a lot of the, the problems that we have in the country are people um, almost yearning kind of for an imagined golden age that never existed, if you like. And, and this is where a lot of the rhetoric, I think, the harmful rhetoric, in my view, uh, that we see politically at the moment comes from is people thinking, oh, I'm back in the good old days, you know, that's when things were good. But actually, in the good old days, you would have strawberries in the summer. <laughs> you would not have strawberries in the winter, you know. And actually, if people, you know, really do want to get back to, you know, how things used to be, it strikes me that, you know, the food thing is a good place to start because that's the, the you know, the natural order of things, really. Um, so, uh, but I think let's leave it on a positive note because I think there's always room for optimism, you know, and all of these things. And I love, you know, I think the idea that, you know, that food can be something that really binds us together but that also offers you know real solutions to the kind of climate stuff that we're facing i think is a really positive thing can i say a little yeah, more on of course, that Talia, um, yeah. just because yeah i don't want to um 
convey my pessimistic view too much um, because you're absolutely right I think food is something that what is so exciting about it is that it does pose so many solutions you know changing the way that we supply our food the way that we consume food thinking more seasonally trying to eat more locally you know like there are so many benefits I think working in the area of food you it's so exciting because you just think wow like if we were to change a few a few big things but you know the you do one thing and it has a knock-on effect and it's positive in so many ways you know if we grow more food locally we're boosting the local economy there's more for everyone we're supplying jobs things like that we're we're nourishing our bodies better i think what i haven't spoken out about much is the health considerations you know if we change our diets and we were to eat in a way that was you know better for our bodies and better for the planet glasgow is such an unhealthy city and that is so related to all these other things you know health inequalities and the way that so many parts of the city have not had the opportunity or the wealth building to be able to eat in a way that is good for them and then you have you know health inequalities that completely follow a class-based line and and continue that inequality and inequality cycle and you think okay well if we can just change this crucial area of food we can change so much in Glasgow and I think that's so exciting and I would really say so I haven't spoken much about it, but the Glasgow City Food Plan. So it's a 10-year plan with the aim of making food that is um, more nutritious. It's healthier, it's better for our bodies, it's better for the planet. And its goal is to bring together, what we do at Glasgow Food Policy Partnership is bring together all these different actors, the NHS, the Health and Social Care Partnership, the Council, Glasgow Community Food Network, all these people, bringing them to the table and thinking, okay, how can we transform our food system? What what actions are we going to do? And the actions are there. And the the context of the recent years covid the war the cost of living crisis it's made it all a lot harder everyone's under strain but the vision is really there and it's just meeting those actions and i think the context of the good food nation act in scotland is also really exciting that now this is something that the scottish government is supporting and i think over the next year that will be moving to a consultation and there'll be a national food plan for Scotland and I would really urge everyone to have a look at that they'll be consulting on it and that's a chance to really make sure that that opportunity is seized and that we're really taking the chance to try and transform our food system um so the chances are there and people are thinking about food I guess it's just making it as radical as we want to and making sure that Scotland as a good food nation is serving the people and and addressing all of these things that are important to us and that we're getting the food system that we do have a right to and the food that we do have a right to. So I hope that's a bit more of a positive note. Definitely, Talia. And I think radical is what we're all about, you know, and I think, you know, you can see it in in, in every sort of strata of the the work that we do, you know, around, um, you know, climate justice and just transition and net zero and all the rest of it. But radical is what it needs, you know, at the moment. And it needs people to be taking this stuff by the scruff of the neck and getting on with it. So we will look forward to hearing more about that in due course. But I cannot let you go, Talia, without talking very, very briefly about podcasts, because this is a podcast and you also have a podcast. Um, How have you found the process of producing the podcast? Tell us a little bit about it. And do you think is this is are we wasting our time or is this an effective way do you think of getting our message across so i so my podcast our podcast at glasgow food policy partnership is called the good food for glasgow podcast i love to podcast and i would like to think i'm good at it thinking of names for podcasts may be trickier so the good food for glasgow podcast is not the most imaginative but it is a great podcast if i say so myself and i would say how i would describe it is that 
I basically have a few guests each episode usually and choose one area. Sometimes it relates to something that's happening at the time. It's a seasonal kind of, there's something going on globally. It's maybe food waste week and we talk about food waste, whatever it is. But I, I mean, I love making the podcast. I think it, I don't know how you feel. I just, it's the best part of my job being able to chat to people. And I've learned so much about food and about what different people do and about different areas of the food system it always gives me so much to think about and every time I finish an interview with someone I usually do it over zoom so it's actually lovely to be here in person today but every time I hang up on a zoom call I just am so excited because I'm like that was so exciting and engaging and I personally have a great time doing it so I hope that comes across for the people listening and in terms of whether I think we're wasting our time I mean obviously I'm getting a lot out of it myself so even if no one else is listening I don't even I don't even mind um, that's not true. Um, I would say what what I think is great about podcasts is that anyone can listen anywhere in the world. It can be anywhere, but also that you know we're we're everyone's busy. Even if I'm running an event in Glasgow, it doesn't mean everyone's going to be able to come at that time and make it to the location where it is. Whereas a podcast, anyone can listen to it in Glasgow or wherever. I think whatever time they have have a spare half an hour to listen to it, and that I guess. In terms of the resources that go into it, I would say that, you know, it doesn't have all the, the considerations of, you know, like, okay, are people going to be able to get to where you want to, like, have this conversation? Are people going to have the time to? But also that, you know, then if I'm putting on an event, I've got to find a venue, I've got to find speakers, you've got to, there are all these outgoing costs, whereas typically if you can find someone to chat to that has a message to share, they're, they're going to come on your podcast and you don't have to pay them anything it's great which I don't know if that's so ethical but usually people are you know they're doing as part of their job role so I think it's okay um but I would say it's I guess the the thing that would take a similar amount of resources would be like a social media post and I think you get so much more out of a podcast than out of an Instagram post um because you know you can just delve so much deeper into issues so I guess that was my initial consideration when making the podcast and for anyone that's thinking about listening, I will say one benefit of it, of the Good Food for Glasgow podcast, even if you've found me not that nice to listen to, I barely say anything. I just ask the questions. So you don't even have to worry about listening to my voice more. So I would say do go and check it out if you've thought anything in the content of what I was saying was interesting. I think you are going to find a massive spike in your uh, listenership after this, uh, Talia, because it has been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. And, you know, you were saying that you learn stuff from the people you were talking to. Well, I've learned a huge amount from talking to you today. So it's been been really, really great. Um, it'd be great to get you back on maybe next year sometime. And we'll talk about how things have changed, how things are moving with the plan, uh, whether we're any further forward. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us today, Talia. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Disrupting the Donut of Doom. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. It was absolutely fascinating to talk to Talia and uh, hear uh, not just about her experiences, but also about the work that they're doing over there at Glasgow Food Policy Partnership. And it was 
one of those chats where I sort of felt that we could have gone on for hours. And the good news is that we actually did go on for hours uh, because, as I mentioned at the beginning, that is just the first instalment, if you like, of my uh, chat with Talia. Um, and we're also going to be chatting again over on the Good Food for Glasgow podcast. So look out for that. And obviously, we'll have links um, so that you can listen to both podcasts in due course because actually there was surprisingly little crossover in the discussion we had. And it just goes to show, I think you picked up there, you know, in some of the, the issues that we ended up touching on, just how nuanced this is as a subject, just how much, uh, how many different considerations there are uh, when it comes to food and the effect that it has on everybody's lives. Food is a universal, uh, you know, everybody uh, requires food to survive. And um, the fact that some people struggle so hard um, to uh, to be able to get the food that they need to survive on a day-to-day basis, even in a city like Glasgow, you know, should give us all pause for thought, I think. So lots to think about, lots of work to be done, and uh, lots of opportunities as well, I think, as we look into the future for, for ways that we can improve the food system that we have to make it fairer and more equitable for everyone. So I'll be back in about a month's time with our next instalment of the Disrupting the Donut of Doom podcast. For now, can I just say thank you once again to our funders, uh, Esme Fairbairn and Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Without their generous assistance, uh, none of the work that we do in the environmental team at Senvo Scotland would, would be happening. And, uh, and we're very proud of the work that we are doing. Um, if you simply cannot stand the wait uh, until the next episode, which will be out sometime around mid-August, don't forget that we have another couple of previous episodes, uh, which you can listen to on the podcast. The first one is with my colleague, Acus Cambodge, uh, where we had a fascinating chat about the Ethnic Minority Environmental Network. And the second episode with Dr. Mark Wong from the University of Glasgow, where we chatted about a computer game which we helped to develop. Uh, So for now, uh, we'll be back with more Disrupting the Donut of Doom next time. See you then. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and share it with others. It'll really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. You can drop our story weavers a line at stories at scan.scot. It's scan, S-C-C-A-N, dot scot, S-C-O-T. We also offer training and mini-grant support to community storytellers. To keep up to date with our offerings and everything SCAN, check out our website at scan.scot or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter.